everyone. Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan, and I'm here today with Ariella Thornhill. Ariella, what's new? Hey, guys. Um, not much reading a lot about the PMC. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's favorite class. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I feel Everyone's- like before... Before we sh- before we start, I feel like I should mention, I don't know if any of you guys recognize that I am in the Jacobin office right now, and that is because the internet at uh, my apartment has been down all afternoon, um, which I mentioned because I thought that I had signed up for the PMC internet. Like, I did research on the various <laughs> internet service providers, and I was like, I think this is the one that all of the, like, upwardly mobile professionals use. So, I don't know. I don't know. Off to a great start already. You shouldn't have crossed them. They heard about I- Oh, and they shut you down. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, so so on the subject of the PMC, what what is the PMC? I feel like this is a term that we have started to hear more and more of. Um, I think it became, especially on the left, it became kind of a like buzzword that people would say, uh, especially I think when talking about the differences between um, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren and her supporters, and then of course Bernie Sanders supporters. Um, so Ariella, did you were you familiar? familiar with this term or like, did you know of this term before it kind of came into vogue? Yeah, I'd heard about it a little bit. Um, And then I think a year and a half ago, I was gifted the PMC Bible. That book is so good. (laughs) It's very good. It was out of print for like 30 years or something. Yeah, this is the new one. So now we've got this beautiful cover. What's on the Um, cover? A guy looking into a mirror. Imagining that he is... (sighs) turning into a homeless man. Oh no. Yeah. 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 He's a, there's a shabby man with a beard. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's great. So I was reading that, but I hadn't really been part of the cultural moment where a lot of people were talking about it. And then, um, I sort of revisited those arguments and it's a really sticky term. Mm -hmm. I think it's, like a absolutely necessary area of focus, but it's hard to nail it down. And it's right. a class that's changed so much. And I think I it overlaps with a lot of other things like liberalism, neoliberalism, Coastal elitism. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, I was thinking about uh, when we were doing an episode like a few a few shows ago where we were talking about the working class and how that's mm-hmm. been, especially in the U.S. context, a very slippery definition as well. And I guess the one good thing about the professional managerial class is we can literally trace the term to Barbara and John Ehrenreich uh, writing in a 1977 essay uh, that this is kind of a specific class that... Um, they say that it encompasses like white collar workers and creative mm-hmm. workers. So I think that they, you know, sort of name check doctors, academics, lawyers, um, artists, uh, so on and so forth. I think other people sometimes lump like teachers um, mm-hmm. and nurses and other people who have a college degree into that area. Um, and I think that part is sort of porous, like uh, yeah. like. There's no like there's no like definitive Aaron Reich list of who is and who is not PMC. Um, but I think the important thing about it is this is a group that sits between sits sort of between what we traditionally think of as labor or the traditional working class and then also the ruling class. So like these are not people who are capitalists. Um, they don't you know own the means of production, to put it in kind of Marxist terms. Um, but at the same time, they do they do play a role in upholding uh, capitalism. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something that Catherine is going to um, fully unpack later. So I don't want to get too deeply into that now. Um, But but do you have a sense of like who the PMC is today? 
Well, what's interesting is, and I think you'll get to this in your segment, is that certain industries have fallen out of that classification. And you Mm -hmm. see these kinds of assaults, like um, one example is an adjunct professor, right, versus a tenured professor. They have very different interests in how they relate to their institutions. And some have an interest in protecting it in a really calcified way, while others have an interest in questioning it and pushing on it. And that's usually just by virtue of their precarity. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, you know, fear of falling outlines how the middle class and upper middle class have kind of created barriers to protect their class position. And then you see that played out on a micro level. So I think now, you know, we've got tech workers who would absolutely be called PMCs. And then we have tech workers who are unionizing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it's a white collar union. Maybe there, maybe we'll see unionization in the kinds of people who, I don't know, have to sift through horrible content all day um, or who have more drudge work. I think the PMC is the class of laborers who are, they have credentials, they're credentialed mm-hmm. employees. Um, they have some kind of qualified work experience and educational experience. And they're typically the class that capitalists want to retain. They're mm-hmm. expensive to replace. Mm-hmm. So they end up getting a lot of things through their, you know, preferred avenues of like empathy building at work, right? That works for you if your boss is like, I can't replace you Mm -hmm. in my media company because that'll be incredibly expensive to train another person to do that job or there aren't a lot of people. But if you're, you know, working at the print shop, Mm -hmm. you might have a very different position in terms of that company. So I Mm -hmm. think that kind of sums it up, but it, you know, it's a shifting category. What do you think, Jen? Who's, are we part of it? (laughs) Yes, (laughs) probably. Um, I mean, so, uh, So the French economist Frederick Lordon, he has a really interesting line about just managers and supervisors in general. He says that uh, managers are a specific type of employee that are materially on the side of labor, but symbolically on the side of capital. Um, And I think I always think about that line. I think that's really interesting. And of course, managers are part of the professional managerial class. It's in the title. And um you know, he also goes on to say that that uh, the manager is kind of neoliberalism's model worker, right? Again, somebody who's materially on the side of labor, but uh, symbolically on the side of capital. And so I think at worst, the PMC functions like that. And again, like, I don't want to steal too much of Catherine's thunder. <laughs> so maybe I'll like leave it at that for now. Um, but one last thing I want to add is I think that these days when people talk about the PMC, there's also they're also referring to a kind of affect or like a kind of um, cultural component. And I was thinking recently about, um, do you remember the blog in the early 2000s called Stuff White People Like? And I think it became a book. It did become a book. Um, I mean, so so for it's anyone not who doesn't behind me, it's definitely not behind you. Um, for anyone who might not be familiar, you know, it was like a list of like quote things white people like, and like I think some cheese, of the references, like expensive yeah, yeah, cheese. Yeah, I was gonna say, um, I think some of the Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the references might be like kind of outdated by now, but yeah, it's like what you said, like Waldorf schools, TED talks, kale salad, mm-hmm. um, and I like 
funnily enough, I think it's actually all stuff that the PMC likes, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not the stuff that when Republicans caricature the white working class, they think they, they like, right? right it's exactly. not like a nice Ford pickup truck and mm-hmm. <laughs> like a cold beer at the end of the day, mm-hmm. right. right? It's right. like the, <laughs> the, the worst of um, Obama's posturing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you remember when people would criticize him for like, also liking cheese, you know, any <laughs> right. virtue signal things that he did um, absolutely are stuff white people like. It's, <laughs> we need to write a new book, Stuff the PMC, the PMC likes. likes. I mean, it's probably like mostly the same stuff, but like, yeah. And definitely. maybe the book. Probably. <laughs> right. The book itself. Into the book navel stuff, like, people, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, on that note, um, let's let's dive into our segments now, um, because I know that, you know, we, we have Catherine Liu coming up um, or at around 630. Um, that's obviously going to be a great interview. So everybody, please stick around for that. So on the on the subject of the PMC, um, I think what I want to talk about is the PMC during the pandemic. Um, and I think. I think before I, you know, totally dive in, it's helpful to revisit some of what Barbara Ehrenreich and John Ehrenreich talked about in their 2013 essay, Death of a Yuppie Dream. Um, and I think Catherine might touch on this as well later. Um, but, uh, this was, this was something that they wrote a little after the Occupy Wall Street era, while the country was still really in the throes of the Great Recession. And in this essay, the Ehrenreichs argue that the professional managerial class is near its end. So so they're basically saying the PMC is basically on its way out. And they talk about how the PMC has been fractured by decades of technological changes, uh, job outsourcing, attacks on labor. So essentially the same conditions that uh, that the working class has always faced. But from the 1970s onward, the Ehrenreichs argue that the PMC is increasingly subject to these forces as well. So they then argue that as a result, the members of the PMC, um, they're basically either peeling off to join this sort of super elite tier of massively wealthy CEOs and super managers. And then on the lower end, the PMC uh, is suffering the collapse of many of their professions, as Ariella mentioned earlier. Um, That includes the decline of newspaper journalism to the elimination of tenured academic jobs. Um, So in other words, the lower half of the PMC is increasingly becoming proletarianized. So, so the Ehrenreichs, you know, they they look at all of this and they argue that the remaining members of the PMC basically have a choice now. Um, they can join with the traditional working class to fight against capitalism or they can resign themselves essentially to the dustbin of history. Right. And the Ehrenreichs conclude their essay by writing in the coming years. We expect to see the remnants of the PMC increasingly making common cause with the remnants of the traditional working class for, at a minimum, representation in the political process. This is the project that the Occupy movement initiated and spread, for a time anyway, worldwide. And I think if you graduated into the Great Recession, which I did, um, or if you had, you know, any involvement or interest in Occupy, I think a lot of the Ehrenreich's assessment really does ring true, right? Um, I mean, you know, the majority of participants of Occupy were college grads uh, who were experiencing this massive student debt, unemployment and downward mobility, particularly in the economic downturn. And I think that Occupy's, uh, you know, language of we are the 99 percent really does reflect its participants' um, 
it, it, it reflects how its participants sort of saw themselves as part of the exploited masses. And in many senses, they were, right? Uh, but if we jump forward to the current economic recession and, you know, the pandemic that's going on right now, um, I think it's becoming harder in some ways to argue that the only fault line is between the 1% and the 99%. So to be fair, all of the trends that the Aaron Reichs identified in 2013, I think, you know, are still going strong. Um, and when we think about who's actually done well during the pandemic, obviously still the top 1%, still the top 0.01%. Um, I mean, I think billionaires, you know, collectively grew their wealth by over a trillion dollars just during the pandemic alone. But that said, uh, it's also the case that the top 20 to 25% of income earners, uh, which again is a large chunk of the professional managerial class, um, these people have basically all but recovered from the pandemic economic crash, um, or they weren't really affected much by it to begin with. So if we look at this chart from the Washington Post, um, you can really see how the, the economic recovery for the top 25% of earners compares to the lowest earners for the last couple of recessions. And, you know, if you look at the coronavirus crisis uh, segment, uh, you can see that for this one, jobs held by the top income earners have essentially already all returned. And that's just not the case at all for the lowest earners. So just to drive that home, I want to read a quote from the Washington Post article. They write, by the end of the summer, the downturn was largely over for the wealthy. White collar jobs had mostly rebounded along with home values and stock prices. The shift to remote work strongly favored more educated workers with as many as six in 10 college educated employees working from home at the outset of the crisis compared with about one in seven who only have high school diplomas. So the point here, you know, is, is of course, not that the PMC is doing as well as the billionaires, but that their relative stability and safety, I think, helps explain some of their behavior that we saw during the pandemic. So one example is, um, you know, we saw large segments of the PMC sort of immediately plunge headlong into what we might call the coronavirus culture wars. So you, you saw people elevating all of these anti-Trump blue state governors like Andrew Cuomo, um, even though, of course, New York's death toll is higher than any other states as a direct result of Cuomo failing to take measures um, to contain outbreaks early on in the pandemic. And also, um, this is a product of his years of pushing through austerity policies like budget cuts and hospital closures. Um, but I think the most striking example of the PMC's unique position during this pandemic was actually displayed through their attitudes towards other workers. So, you know, on one hand, in the early days of lockdowns, um, we saw all of these white collar workers in New York kind of making a show of clapping and applauding nightly from their windows for essential workers going to work. Uh, now, this is a gesture that, of course, like, I don't think you can deny is incredibly well intentioned. Um, but, you know, it also sometimes felt a little thin or even self congratulatory. And and in addition to that, you know, despite this symbolic show of solidarity, by the end of the summer, members of the PMC and in particular the liberal commentariat, they really begin pressing for the reopening of schools explicitly against the wishes of public school teachers and their unions. So we have these supposedly progressive columnists in the Washington Post, uh, the New York Times and other outlets um, who, you know, essentially joined Donald Trump in calling for schools to reopen in the fall. And they argue that, quote, the science had proven that schools were not major super spreaders. 
Now, like I said, in doing so, this group of liberals really positioned themselves against teachers across the country who, you know, repeatedly raised concerns that after decades of disinvestment, their classrooms were just not ready for in-person learning during during the pandemic. Um, you, you hear teachers saying that school buildings aren't well ventilated, uh, that schools are not properly staffed with enough nurses or other medical personnel. And a lot of teachers really worried that there would just be a shortage of um, personal protective equipment, which I think is a, is a very fair worry. Um, and then despite that, uh, the PMC continues saying, well, no, we should reopen schools. Um, and this doesn't really come as much as a, of a surprise, but lots of people also say, well, remote learning is disproportionately hurting black and brown children, right? Um, and, you know, this is probably true to some degree, but at the same time, we also have tons of polls that show that low-income parents and black and brown parents disproportionately do not want to send their kids back to school during an active pandemic. And then on top of all that, a few months later, um, the science that the PMC claims to love so much actually now suggests that schools could be serious sites of transmission. So we have um, a couple new high quality studies that show that when when community transmission is low, reopening school buildings is not much of a risk. In that context, it's fine. But when community transmission is higher, such as in the large coastal cities where the media class tends to live, schools likely do play a role in transmission. Um, And we also had another study uh, just from last month that found that reopening schools in Florida led to increased rates of infection among students. And again, like Just to reiterate, this whole time, public school teachers and their unions have been fighting to keep schools remote. Um, Even right now, actually, the Chicago Teachers Union is um, currently considering a strike, given that Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot is once again pushing to reopen schools, even though vaccines are not yet widely available. So I... I just want to return to the Aaron Reich's prediction that the PMC could make common cause with the working class, um, because I think I think the Aaron Reich's correctly diagnosed the problems facing the PMC. And they also correctly judged the mood of the PMC during the last recession. But I guess nearly a decade later, and especially during this new downturn, um, I'm I'm not sure that the signs are so great. Um, And and hopefully Catherine will elaborate more on this. you know, obviously the pandemic has made it clear how much we need massive public investment. Uh, we need policies like universal health care and a federal jobs program. And for the most part, I don't see many signs that the majority of the PMC today um, is getting on board with that. I don't see that they are invested in the expansion of public goods or the types of universal programs that can transfer power to working people. Um, So like I said, Catherine's going to talk about this in much more detail, um, so I won't say too much more here. So I'll wrap up and hand it over to you, Ariella. Yeah, it's really been fascinating to see the way these fissures come out. Like, you know, we talked about the kind of culture war aspect of the coronavirus, mask shaming, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems like a hallmark, maybe not just of of the PMC, but it seems that they tend to individualize these crises, Mm -hmm. right? Instead of viewing it as a broad issue, it's like, my kid's going to fall behind. Mm -hmm. And maybe my kid's like all those black and brown kids. And what if it's even worse for them? But (laughs) Right. No, totally. Yeah. With the mask shaming um, or, you know, the the kind of like push that like individuals should social distance. I mean, that's all true. You know, like wear your mask and like practice social distancing and, you know, like don't go to bars or whatever. Um, But I I do feel that the focus really was on kind of these individual issues. I mean, how can you 
glorify Cuomo, who, you know, caused hundreds of thousands of deaths. Yeah. Um, the Cuomo sexual shirts are just egregious. egregious. I, I, I almost like wanted to play a video clip of Ellen DeGeneres talking about being a Cuomo sexual. She's but I was canceled like, on the Jacobin channel. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah I was like, it's too, it's too much. It's too much. No one, no one wants to see that. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, that aspect of things that the way that it becomes hyper individualized, it's this um, coming to terms with, in a way, the what they feel is the futility of collective action. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it accepts that. And then it says, well, I'm going to strive to be the most competitive mm-hmm. in a world where collective action is not possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's one of the ways that it becomes the most clear how they're antagonistic towards the working class, towards universal programs, and towards the demands of you know, most people mm-hmm. who can't, and, sorry, I was going to say they can't actually afford the time and the energy to gather up the information and, and skirt their way through to get on top of the pile. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to mention quickly that the reason why I brought up, uh, you know, this segment of the PMC kind of pivoting on reopening the schools is because all of those people were like super locked down like super pro mm-hmm. lockdown, like close everything down until I think they had to spend a little too much time with their children. <laughs> with their children. Um, yeah. And then, and then suddenly it was like, oh, well, all the science says that we have to, you know, reopen the schools. Um, and like I said, it was, uh, it was, I think the thing that like really got to me was that it was just so hostile to teachers unions. I mean, I think that there was a a headline on the um, collage that Kale put together where, you know, uh, uh, let's see. uh, Teachers share the blame. Yes. Yes. It was like teachers unions. Teachers unions share the blame. Yeah. Yeah. That is a great segue into my segment, (laughs) which is, you know, a fun example of the PMC actively opposing uh, a strike by Marriott workers. So I'm going to get into that now. Um, So, you know, one of the things that me and Jen talked about is how the PMC trades in emotion. That's one of its hallmarks from the empathy craze of the 70s to the internal bias craze of the early aughts. The PMC has been there every step of the way. And this might be because, as Jen and I have noted in our discussion of anti-racism training, these ideas and all their attendant armchair psychology are extremely popular in workplace trainings, and a big portion of this class would be subject to those trainings, um, most of the time by law, if they're in a managerial or supervisor position. But I also think that members of this class, for members of this class, affecting interpersonal interactions through behavioral and emotional changes is a particularly useful thing for them. I think they continue to see this as a political terrain because it works for them professionally. So let's take a look at infamous PMC guru Cheryl Sandberg's anecdote about parking for expectant mothers. And one day I was late for a meeting and I had to park really far away and I was really sick because I tried to run and that didn't work. And I talked to my husband at the time, who was at Yahoo at the time, and he said, well, where's the pregnancy parking? And I, I had never heard of pregnancy parking, but he told me that Yahoo had it in front of every building. So... And you remember this? I marched myself into Larry and Sergey's office, found Sergey, and said, Sergey. And Sergey, by the way, was doing yoga. Correct. <laughs> doing yoga in the corner. And I completely interrupted him and said, Sergey, we need pregnancy parking. And he looked up at all of me and he said, We sure do. <laughs> <laughs> but then what he said was, I never thought of it before. Let's do it immediately. Yeah. 
And Boom, I just have like never that. thought about it before. And, you know, I left Google, as you said, but the pregnancy parking is still there. And so my point is that if we get more women into these jobs, we will make those institutional And in the book, you reforms. actually, in the book, in so it seems like a pretty easily one benefit for the pregnant women at Google, most likely because it costs literally nothing for Google to do and because it was good management practice. A lot of these interpersonal con concessions are great for management. It's good optics. It's good work for workforce retention. And that's a big concern for companies with PMC workers whose training makes them difficult to replace. It also strengthens management's position. They can say, I'm the one who got you the pregnancy spots. Who needs a union? We're all friends. In fact, empathy, responsiveness, and listening are all standard parts of the management trade book nowadays. Here's a glimpse at some management materials about empathy. The first thing that they encourage you to do in your workplace is talk about empathy, teach listening skills, Encourage genuine perspective taking. It's unclear to me what that means, but I think they fleshed that out in the seminar. Cultivate compassion and support global managers. Um, and, you know, this kind of stuff goes on to say that empathy makes your workers more productive. It makes them better employees and makes you a better manager. And it's a key part of any soft management skill set. So there are literally hundreds of thousands of these trainings that people are subject to in their workplaces every year. And it's part and parcel of a general psychology of liberalism. But it also is a strategy that works, just as we saw with Sheryl Sandberg and her pregnancy spots. Um, here's empathy expert and apparent sociopath trainer, Margie Warnell praising Marriott CEO Arnie Sorensen for his empathetic me video message to the 174,000 people working for the company who are experiencing or at risk for furloughs, layoffs, and loss of benefits due to the coronavirus. Arnie Sorensen, the CEO of Marriott, really exemplified what empathetic leadership is during his recent video message to Marriott employees. Clearly, Marriott has been hard hit by this crisis. And yet, Arnie Sorensen showed that in the midst of having to make some really hard decisions that would impact the lives of Marriott employees, he did that with a very, very empathetic heart, with a heavy heart. And of course, that level of empathy is what allows those who are part of the Marriott family to know that they're genuinely cared for, even in the midst of having to make hard decisions. Now let's look at how Arnie treated the Marriott family in 2018 when 3,000 Marriott employees across the U.S. went on strike for better wages. Now Marriott has said it had hoped to resolve this agreement many months ago and says it remains committed to, uh, to negotiating in good faith. The strike at the San Jose Marriott and at seven other hotels in San Francisco involves about 2,700 union-represented employees. The lack of progress in negotiations has prompted San Francisco Supervisor Hillary Ronan to convene a special hearing tomorrow. Marriott International's president and CEO Arnie Sorensen was invited but said he won't attend. Arnie violated the first rule of Empathy Club, which is listen. He further commented that the silence shouldn't be interpreted as supporting the union's 
accusation that Marriott's management was being oppositional to the workers' demands. But I guess empathy can be silent sometimes, especially if there's a picket line and they're demanding a $4 an hour wage increase. Now let's see how the PMC reacted. Replacement workers are being bused to San Francisco from Salinas and Modesto at $17 an hour hired by a contractor. In San Jose, with 200 workers on the picket line, it appears managers are doing the work. A lot of uh, management level people from other hotels have been working here um, and also some temp workers. They replaced the workers with management level employees from other hotels in the area. And it's not that management wasn't sufficiently empathetic to the demands of the striking workers, but management isn't in the bargaining unit and they have no incentive to actually join in the picket line. In fact, they can be penalized for that kind of solidarity with workers. And I think that's the bigger point here. It's not about empathy. Empathy only goes so far. But the other point is that the left has its own emotion that it claims, and that's shame. And I know there's been a lot in the media about how toxic shame is, but shame is the most important feeling on the picket line. If you can stop someone from crossing by shaming them, that is a pro-social emotion. And it's one you can easily apply to the empathetic managers who are scabbing for the company. Shame is what makes you not cross the picket line. And shame is what you feel if, like Arnie Sorensen, you furloughed most American workers last April while paying out $160 million in quarterly dividends and pursuing a pay raise. One former employee who was laid off because of coronavirus had this to say about the company's empathy-forward response in an interview with the New York Times. Quote, they just say, we don't need you. You are on your own said William Gonzalez, 47, who was laid off last month from his job at an employee cafeteria at the Marriott Hotel in San Francisco, leaving his family unable to pay rent. Quote, the company has been making billions and billions of dollars, and a lot of that money doesn't go to pay workers, he added. I thought there was going to be a moment where they say, okay, we're going to help you. But as we've seen in the above clips, that moment never came. It would be foolish to say the left isn't also empathy focused. Of course, empathy is extremely important for literally every human being. It's not just the sole virtue of the PMC, but it's not the focus on emotions that makes the left different from the ruling class or the PMCs. It's what we do with them. Solidarity is based in emotion and class position. The basis of it is that our fight is the same and we are stronger together. We know how it feels to struggle under exploitation, but our fight is not in feelings, it's in strategy. Of course, this requires exercising all kinds of emotional intelligence. Certainly some of it you could learn from these management seminars, but the left can turn despair into the kind of rage and righteousness that can move thousands of people to demand something more than a parking space, to have a goal beyond listening to make a world that matches our compassion for others. The liberal and PMC view is that kind thoughts and empathy alone will propel us to this new world. And this may be true for some. 
If like Sheryl Sandberg, you're in a senior position at a company and can tell your boss in the middle of yoga that he should consider that pregnant women get uncomfortable walking a long way in parking lots. But for the vast majority of us, this is not the world we inhabit. For the rest of us, empathy is nothing without strategy and solidarity. So your segment reminds me of a really amazing Sheryl Sandberg story, uh, which I don't know you, if you know, um, but during the like height of the lean in days, she was going to give a talk at a conference, like a big women's conference, professional women's mm-hmm. conference that was being held in a hospital. And um, I'm sorry, not a hospital, a hotel. Um, and yeah, the hotel workers. Rock. Yeah, yeah. And the yeah. hotel workers, uh, you know, who are predominantly women, predominantly women of color, you know, low income, um, I think were going on strike. And they mm-hmm. they didn't ask her to not cross the picket line, but they were like, hey, like, we know, um, we know that you, you know, work on women's issues. We know that you are like an advocate for women in the workplace. Like, could you possibly come talk to us as well? And she was like, oh, no, sorry, bye. Yeah. She's like, well, you don't have women in senior leadership positions that I can appeal to. The thing is that I want to emphasize here is that in a lot of these places, maybe it does work to say, listen, I'm a woman of color in a senior position. You need to stop saying that, you know, employees have to have certain hairstyles. Mm -hmm. And that is nice. You know, like Mm -hmm. we want to fight for more freedom at work. We just don't want it to be through one specific nexus of installing an empathetic person Mm -hmm. in a position of power over Mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. That is a horrible horrible strategy. Right. I mean, I think you've said this before, like, even if that person is genuinely great, what happens when they leave or are fired or like die or whatever? So or what happens when you start to demand something that costs more money than letting exactly. people wear their hair however they want or having a pregnancy spot? The empathy stops. Yeah. And you know, what's, what's also crucial about this is that at the same time as Cheryl Sandberg is saying, you know, it took me being pregnant and having this experience for me to realize, oh, maybe this is something everybody wants. I assure you that if you had a, a, a strong union where workers were democratically represented, one pregnant woman or another would be like, you need to let me park closer to the building. Right. <laughs> and it wouldn't take someone in a senior position. And that is the redistribution of power. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly what the PMC is actively fighting against because within mm-hmm. the arrangement, they do kind of have a monopoly on a certain kind of interpersonal right. power. Right. And, right. and they don't want to let that go. Right. Um, well, on that note, I think this is the perfect time to bring in Catherine Liu. Um, I think Catherine's here with us. Catherine, hello. Hi, hi, guys. That was so a great I show. Think, great. Well, thank you. I mean, it, it's only going to get better from here on out. <laughs> All right, let's see if I can get in the middle of the camera, though. Yeah. Okay, that's good. So I think a lot of viewers are probably familiar with you already, Catherine. Um, but for anybody who is just joining us now, uh, Catherine Liu is professor of film and media studies at UC Irvine. She's mm. also the author of the new book, uh, Virtue Hoarders. The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class, uh, a very excellent book. Catherine, you yourself has descri- have described it as a short book, so I encourage everybody to read it, and it is linked down below in the description box and appearing in Ariella's screen. <laughs> and I should mention, um, for anyone who saw Catherine on the New Year's Eve live stream, Catherine <laughs> is also always the life of the party. So I'm welcome to the Jack Show. show. I'm not drunk <laughs> though, today, so sorry. Not, not yet. You no, can not be. Yet. We have no standards. Ooh. Try, try January. Try January. <laughs> 
Um, so, Catherine, I, I want to start out uh, by asking you about the Aaron Reichs and the professional managerial class, because I had talked a little bit about that before, Death of a Yuppie Dream. Mm-hmm. And um, you address this a little bit in your book as well. So Barbara mm-hmm. and John Aaron Reich, who, you know, I love their work. And, and like I said, there's a lot about uh, that essay that I love. Um, they say that the professional managerial class is on its last legs, basically. Do you agree with that assessment? And then the second part of the question is, why did you choose to focus on the PMC now? Um, okay, I'll start with the um, second part of the question first. I feel like um, after years of um, miseducation within the humanities, um, a lot of our times people do not understand what it is, what class is at all. And the ideology of class difference and class contradiction and its motor and historical power has been naturalized through PMC um, college-educated um, worldviews where um, a, there's a kind of class pacification that has taken place through liberalism. And part of that had to do with this idea of um, 1989 being the end of history and that you know, um, capitalism had triumphed in some way within the um, West in, in, on a global scale. But um, I really want to revive this notion of class because I think that it still has and obtains an incredible power within the ways in which we think, we feel, we work. And um, more than ever, I think that the values of this class that John and Barbara Aaron and I talked about as being mediating mediating between working class and capitalist class, those values are hegemonic and they've become they've become dominant values for um variety of reasons. The PMC dominates the media, dominates academia, et cetera, et cetera. But what I wanted to get at also was a sense of history, because I think one of the things that um Barbara and John Aronike really rely on is left-wing sociologists from Siegfried Krakauer to C. Wright Mills. And in the beginning of the segment, we were talking about how difficult it was to define this class. Um, but um, Mills in White Collar had a great definition for it, which is even more, um, which, you know, is one aspect that I think that's important is that he says people who do not work with their bodies, who do not um, suffer bodily harm at work could be thought of as being part of this white collar class that's like um, a precursor to the PMC. And another thing you could say is that people who work in air conditioned offices um, are able to call themselves, are able to call themselves white collar. And it's always, if you think about it this way, negatively defined against working class people who are working with their bodies, who um, gain on the job experience that gives them authority over the labor process not a credential. The credential does not give them power within their um, job workplace. And Siegfried Krakauer said these clerks, this is Weimar Germany. He says these white collar clerks who think of themselves as superior to the laborers that they manage or over which they um, preside, they, um, they may only make a little more than the blue collar workers that they look down upon. And he says at one point that in a really devastating um, statement called this in the salaried masses, they're so willing to write their own pink slips because mm-hmm. they are so identified with the bosses. Mm-hmm. And yet they don't, they feel themselves better than um, the working classes below them. 
And so one of the things I think is really important about Krakauer's analysis of the salaried masses is that he says this is the most delusional class. This class, the sal- there's the proto-PMC is the class that lives in the most, um, in the deepest fantasies about itself and its authorities and its authority and its place in the world. So, um, so that historical background is important. Now, Siegfried Krakauer had a very negative view of the class of clerks and paper pushers. And, um, you can, we can have a more positive view about the regularization of the professions and the credential professions if we look at the early history of the Modern Language Association, which governs humanities professors, or the American Medical Association, which credentials um, doctors. So in the 19th century, you could basically sell like your snake oil and tell people that you were um, a doctor and you could heal with your hands or you could, you know... Um, declare yourself a healer without much of a credential. And the a- the emergence of the AMA really regularized and standardized and professionalized the medical professions. Now, um, that disinterestedness, that sort of taking away um, the grift from the uh, medical profession was really important. But now that we have under um, the neoliberal and the capitalist regime under which we labor, um, the... Um, medical professions as enormous, um, uh, as ancillary to enormously profitable uh, segments of the um, economy, like big pharma, like insurance, like for-profit hospitals. We have the complete um, compromise of this class, in part because to get that credential to be a doctor costs the average person like three $300,000 plus to get the MD. So you can just see within the history of the AMA, the corruption of the class. You can see that throughout um, the, in in all of the histories of the professions. But with um, C. Wright Mills in his book on white collar, what he was talking about, and I think the Aronites rely a lot on him, is that this class is expanding in power in the American economy as capitalism becomes more complex, we need more managers. We need more professions. But he really focuses on the salesman and the bureaucrat within these companies that have to be um, that are always on um, that that are always surveilling each other within these white collar offices. And he says that what has happened within um, these white collar professions is that the whole world has become a sales um, a sales room. And um, that, I think, is also really important for later evolutions and iterations and critiques of this class, because it says the the one thing that um, a white collar um, worker has to do is manage his own emotions. So when you guys were talking about empathy before, we're not talking about like the uh, a profound individually idiosyncratic capacity for empathy we're talking about a reified form of empathy that becomes like transactional within a highly surveilled highly managed situation so it's not like you're going to just have become a more empathetic person like Sheryl Sandberg got or Obama no you have to channel your empathy in these very like HR appropriate ways. And um, C. Wright Mills already talks about, and Adorno and Horkheimer and Frankfurt School people are talking about how white collar workers 
And, you know, the PMC is really, really amazing at this. They're really good at managing themselves. They see their own emotional life, their own subjectivity as um, a set of problems to manage. That's why we have anger management. That's why anti-racism has basically become bias management training. Um, it's not about becoming a better person. Do not believe that for one minute. It is about making yourself feel like you're a better person. You're better than other non-college educated, non-woke, um, um, blue collar workers. But it's about being able to manage your affect in such a way that you um, can produce appropriate emotions at appropriate times. So in many ways, like Jen, if you say, is this class in demise? This class is in crisis. I'll say it's in crisis. It's in an emotional crisis, but it keeps replicating its crises in ways that profit its own managerial system, its own intersubjective and intrasubjective managerial systems. And it tells everyone else who doesn't adhere to its um, values that they are um, vicious, they're villainous, they're, you know, gluttonous. They're, it frames its own superiority in a crypto-religious manner. But it is always in the state of hypervisibility with regard to itself and others. Like one thing I've always really wanted to write about is, you know, even though like everyone's like all like libertarian and privacy, um, now you shouldn't say certain segments of the liberal left are very like anti-surveillance. Um, I think it's within the work of Krakauer, of Mills, of the Ehrenreichs, where you see that the PMC loves visibility. It actually loves um, surveillance and it loves workplace surveillance. It accepts every form of workplace surveillance. Um, the other thing that you guys talked about that I think is really important is that what is happening within the credential classes is the profession, the managerial segment is becoming more and more powerful. The professional section is becoming weaker, like nurses. And I would say, and, um, some and some professors and teachers, they are lower tier um, PMC types because they, if they don't um, ascribe to managerial ambitions. So if you are just an ER nurse, or if you are really satisfied being a second grade teacher, like that woman who knit um, Bernie Sanders um, <laughs> uh, mittens, you, and you don't aspire to management, you are basically um, demoting yourself and restricting your own um, sovereignty within the PMC. The PMC is becoming extremely stratified within itself. And, and the, quest, the question is managerial, the managerial mm -hmm. category. If you want to be a manager of any of other people and of labor processes, you will be rewarded because you will be identified deeply with the bosses. If you want to be a professional now, and just and not and, and not aspire to managerial in a managerial ethos, you're in trouble, actually. And I think that one of the things that you can see is in our you know really problematic healthcare system, where we have and in the university too, where we have these highly paid managers who are basically paid to cut other people's jobs and to cut budgets to the bone and to be um, lean and mean and under neoliberalism and its austerity policies. And then you have people who are actually working. On the hospital floors, you have people who are just who are teaching. Like I'm teaching online all the time now. But if I wanted to be a manager, an administrator, and tell other people what to do, or just like live in this kind of ever-present managerial amnesia, 
that um, is demanded of high level managers these days, I would be paid twice as much as I am paid today. And I'm, I'm doing pretty well. And as um, Jen showed in the, um, in the graphs, you know, I think that um, the top 4% are doing so much better than any um, than the segments underneath it. I think that within every stratum right now, even within the top 1%, top 4%, there is incredible stratification. So if you're in the top 25%, you're doing okay. But if you're at the 25th percentile, you're doing um, much, much worse than the person in the fourth percentile. And so that um, there's an incredible economic incentive to actually give up professional protocols for managerial values. And this is one of the things I talk about in the book. And this mm-hmm. is one of the things that gets me the most exercise too, because what we have in the PMC is a dissociation of the values of professionalism, which I think are based on anti-market forces, disinterestedness, scientific method, professional protocols, and in my in the humanities, historical sensibility, understanding of contradiction. Of course, I believe that you know we should all be Marxists, but um, um, to, because that is truly disinterested scholarship, and I think that mm-hmm. only under a socialist regime could we have like really prosperous humanities. Be, um, if you we we see the willingness of every uh, of people in my profession and people within the professions to give up on professional values immediately to just say like oh yeah we'll, we'll let to trace chase trends mm-hmm. you know to um, embrace innovative new paradigms and those kinds of things are all given to us as top-down marching orders from an administration that um, loves to see itself as on a cutting edge. Cutting edge of what? I don't know. But um, what what I find so terrifying, just within my profession, but I also think within the America, within white-collar fields in America, too, is enormous degrees of compliance mm-hmm. with regard to managerial um, discipline. I have not seen... Um, so many educated people just roll over for managerial directives right now. Mm-hmm. And um, managerial directives right now coming from the university, a lot of it has to do with inclusion and diversity training. We are in such a dystopic state. We just did a big survey, a worker survey of um, faculty, staff, and lecturers in my school, in the School of Humanities at UC Irvine. People are in such great distress across the board and from childcare, from research, from just lack of space, lack of um, time, the the damage that's being done to um, our work capacity is enormous. And yet nobody actually really questions the fact that we've also been asked to do additional training on inclusion and diversity. Mm -hmm. Which doesn't work, which makes you like show up to an auditorium and get yelled at by Robin D'Angelo or something. We're, We're on Zoom now. And I did, okay. All oh, right, right. I did six weeks of that, and um, but what I noted was the the fear, and this goes back to fear of falling. There is such raw fear mm-hmm. of um, questioning things, mm-hmm. anything mm-hmm. that comes down as a directive. And so, one of the things I wanted to do with this book is to be very um, polemical, and to talk about how class formation like this does it is an engine of um 
historical change, but the kinds of rebellion and dissent that the counterculture um, once prided itself on is so incredibly absent now from the PMC. And what John and Barbara Ehrenreich talked about was how the new left was completely um, uh, devoid of any real organic working class relations anymore and was dominated by a professional managerial class. And they were very worried about this in 1977 and worried about the direction of the left um, because the left had become so um, dominated by PMC values. So I am... Oh, John and Chad, can I be believe that? Can I be more specific about why I believe the PMC is in crisis? It's in a crisis of legitimacy right now with regard to um, um, its um, profession of liberal and progressive values, because it's always wanted. It always sees itself as being on the side of progress, but um, because Trump was such an aberration and such an anti-PMC id monster. What we have today is in many ways like um, the PMC acting as a return to normalcy. It has to embrace like normative liberal values, even though it wanted, it also wanted to believe. And classically, when John and Barbara Enrich were writing about it in 77, it always wants to believe that it's a vanguard class and that it's very, and that it's rebellion and anti-authoritarian. And now the PMC is finding itself like, um, really dismayed by the kinds of anti-authoritarian um, forms of revolt that are directed against it, against experts, against professors, against, you know, people who read a lot of books and stuff like that. Like people talk a lot like me. And then, and so now it it's in, it doesn't know what it is. Like, are we preserving our, are we preserving the status quo? Or are we avant-garde and um, forging new ways of being? So. I hope that was, uh, you guys should ask me more questions. <laughs> we have a lot to ask you. <laughs> I'm going to stop now. Um, yeah, you know, one of the things that you were talking about with um, not aspiring towards professionalism, but aspiring towards, you know, more managerial training, more managerial expertise is interesting to me because in my research, I watched like 30 TED Talks. <laughs> I know about the PMC. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that was striking about it is that there's a lot of salience for a particular set of people that if you get good managers in good positions, then, you know, it's it's trickle down, trickle down workers rights, trickle down empathy. Right. Um, you install sympathetic people at the top. And so I think in some ways, you know, they're tricked by this perception that like, well, if I get in this position of power, then I can do good things. Unionizing can't do that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, other forms of um, worker solidarity can't do that, but I can do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been an interesting shift. Um, I wanted to ask you about one of the chapters in Virtue Hoarders, where you talk about the PMC's particular kind of parental anxieties and this is something that the Ehrenreichs touch on. And I think a lot of theorists around the PMC talk about this. And it's been more broadly discussed. Parenthood is um, extremely fraught. Mm -hmm. And people put so much pressure on the decisions they make around raising their kids. Before I get into my question, I want to run this clip from the show, Mr. Show. Because I think it really gets to this kind of parental anxiety. And it's it's like, you know, the PMC's heyday in the 90s. 
So, Kale, can you roll this? My parents were very thoughtful and warm and stable, and that's why I grew up to be an accountant. I want better for her. We're teaching Mr. Weathers to deprive his daughter of just the right things. That way his daughter can grow up to be a doctor, an astronaut, even President of the United States. We're depriving our son of attention for those first few months, and then we will be unfairly rewarding him. And I'm mothering him too much, and this will confuse his sexuality. You're going to be a famous Southern playwright, aren't you, boy? Aren't you, Cole? Aren't you? All right, so it's obviously over the top, but I think that it gets to something. It gets to two things about the way that the PMC manages um, parental responsibility and their vision of what children can access. And the first is that they have taken great pains to kind of um, create gatekeeping mechanisms around the sorts of um, favorable jobs that they typically have. Um, And so they put more pressure on their children because they have to push their kids to get past those gatekeeping mechanisms that they as a class actually installed. Mm. Um, And the second is that there's this kind of um, pop psychology involved, right? Where I think that in their acceptance of retrenchment as this normal state of affairs, right? In their acceptance that solidarity or collective action can't bring anything about. There's a hyper-focus on individualism and individual competition. And so they internalize that with their parenting techniques. So I was hoping, after that Mr. Show sketch, that you could elaborate on that chapter in your book and talk about the individualist family unit-based approach to education, to child rearing, to um, you know outcomes that give children a good life that the PMC has a particular stake in. So this, we, you were talking about um, fear of falling earlier, which is Aaron Reich's book about. Um, the Barbara Ehrenreich's book about the 1980s, in which she describes the fusion of hedonistic values of the yuppie and the hippie, and the PMC, in the face of the hedonism of the yuppie and the hippie, is terrified that they and their children are going to give in to pleasures, and so they have to learn a new, new forms of discipline, new forms of achievement um, that patently no longer work. For um, because the Horatio Alger story is becoming less and less possible um, mm-hmm. with the undermining of social safety nets of public education, the increasingly um, fraught competition for places within elite universities, and so as even as as the social safety net is fraying, um, professional managerial class women and the couple are have to work in order for the family unit to um, maintain its upper middle class um, lifestyles. And then you have child um, bearing and child rearing as these incredibly fraught, incredibly rationalized um, forms of activity. And I think this is one of the most alienating things for people not in this class is to watch professional managerial class people have children and raise their children Mm -hmm. because they're so cut off from any kind of organic relationship with um, reproduction. And Mm -hmm. um, 
They and but it is truly frightening to have a child in the circumstances where competition and actualization have to begin almost from day one. And um, when I was having my son in 2000, I mean, I was hearing about like baby Mozart intrauterine education, like baby Mozart, you'd play on your pregnant belly. I mean, actualization and optimization of capacities and capabilities almost begins um, begins before birth. And I talk about Winnicott and about this kind of parental anxiety that he says, you know, gives way to um, very, very disturbed children. And um, it has to do with this feeling of the parent, the mother as a caretaker or caretaker of um, small infants feeling like she has to be perfect, or we could say she or he, they have to be Mm. perfect. And there is this like upper middle class aspiration for perfection within um, child rearing um, conditions, even as the world is falling apart, you're like, oh, I need to grind my own organic um, steamed carrots for my little darling because I don't want anything impure entering his or her body. Even as the entire country is being, you know, um, force-fed high fructose corn syrup, and, you know, we have um, so many public health problems because of, you know, type 2 diabetes and all this other stuff. You, you have these PMC parents um, cultivating this incredibly precious way of um, uh, raising their children. And I saw this throughout my son's life as I was watching, like, you know, 2000, you know, 9-11, the, the global economy collapses in 2001. Then it collapses again, even more spectacularly in 2008. But it's so incredible how PMC parents were just so impervious to that. The New York Times do some kinds of like crazy, you know, um, sensationalistic articles about this, like getting your two-year-old into the um, elite daycare. Mm-hmm. How crazy. Um, upper, middle, upper East Side moms are crazy. But it was like such, so voyeuristic. And it wasn't really critical. But it was like we had all given up on the fact that public infrastructure for high quality childcare, for high quality public education, for high quality healthcare, all of that was gone. So you had mm-hmm. to raise these little gladiators really from the beginning and you had to teach them how to compete from day one. And this was, this was terrifying. And on the one hand you have that. And then you have the, on the other hand, the sort of um, Waldorf school PMC moms who, you know, forbade their children to play with dolls with faces And it was all about making working class, non-college educated people feel like they were horrible parents, like they were corrupting their children. It was all about superiority. It was all about virtue signaling, all about virtue hoarding. And this is happening in PMC child rearing from day one. And I cannot tell you how angry I am about that still, but the individualized um, notion of competition, optimization of capabilities is based on fear, fear falling, and fear of this dystopic world that we're mm-hmm. letting our children into. And so someone said, you know, why do I believe the PMC is in crisis? Look at the way they're raising their kids. It's horrifying. No, it's perfectly reasonable to write down every single thing that your child says, does, and eats. I also have kids, so I'm familiar with that kind of uh, shame-based can I tell Parenting you model. I, I shared a nanny with a woman whose husband works in the Federal Reserve. Like, because we, I was just trying to figure out how to get childcare. And we were sharing a nanny. This woman made the nanny write down the weight of the baby's yeah. poops, 
and everything yeah. that went into the baby's bodies. It's like, I, what are you meant to this child for? Like, what is the outcome? What it's is also your a learning? profoundly horrible way to relate to your child and yourself. You know, it's really hard to be a parent, no matter what, no matter what class you're in. But that kind of anxiety, you know, and the feeling that every little thing you do is going to come back to haunt you when your kid or turns into something Exactly. Yeah. You know, before we get to Jen's question, I'm sorry about this little digression of mine, but one of the clips that I rolled earlier of that woman who was talking about, you know, having an empathy-centered leadership during the coronavirus, she quoted Albert Einstein as saying that empathy um needs to constantly be cultivated. It's a skill that must be cultivated throughout one's lifetime. She forgot that he was a passionate advocate for socialism. Right. And in in his doing that, he has this pointed critique of exactly the thing that you're talking about. I was wondering if I can read it. It's very quick. Um, in the monthly review, he wrote, um, this crippling of individuals, I consider the worst evil of capitalism. Our whole educational system suffers from this evil. An exaggerated competitive attitude is inculcated into the student who is trained to worship acquisitive success as the as a preparation for his future career. I am convinced there is only one way to eliminate these grave evils, namely through the establishment of a socialist economy accompanied by an educational system which would be oriented towards social goals. And then you he on the show. I know I can't <laughs> yeah. can't be publicist. Yeah. yeah. So so um we've destroyed childhood basically. So I actually have a follow-up question about parenting and also about um, the PMC as the vanguard of virtue. Um, do, do, you, do you both know about these like anti-racist books for children? Yes. Um, it's like a big boom. And oh, Kale has a slide here. Uh, there's anti-racist baby, which I think is the big one. Intersectional, uh, intersectionalize. Um, and then not mm -hmm. my idea uh, was a book that I actually came across on like a gift guide for 11 year olds. Um, I had I, you know, I have a nephew. And so like when Christmas came around, I was like, I'm, I'm going to like look around to like see what 11 year olds were into. And this was on a gift guide, which really bummed me out. Like, that's a bad present. Like, that's what you get if you're bad, you know? <laughs> um, but but you guys are both parents. So like, what do you make of this boom? Um, anxiety. I think this is once again, um, PMC anxiety and part of the crisis because they don't know how to translate values to their children. So it's all about creating these um, extremely reified, I'm going to use the Lukacian term again, reified forms of um, relating with other people like anti-racism is the farthest thing a child needs no baby is born racist I don't it's to satisfy and Kendry got you know 10 billion dollars 10 million dollars from Jack Dorsey who's the CEO of Twitter so this school of thought is actually being rewarded by the oligarchs of our times so if you want to uh, manage your baby's potentially racist feelings, then, you know, you're being rewarded. You're going along the lines of Jack Dorsey. I feel like there's this hyper rational um, desire to be perfect. That is all about this kind of PMC anxiety because they know the world that they've made is a bad world. And they want to be perfect in that bad world to somehow um, defend themselves from the badness of the world. 
Yeah, it also seems like for this class, you know, tolerance or anti-racism or what have you is a kind of social capital. And they're really invested in their kids getting it and they push it in curriculums. And I'm going to plug another book. I should. I'm I'm going off the rails with these secondary sources. But this book is an ethnography of um, an affluent community that is trying to get anti-racist training in their schools. And a lot of the kids come away being like, I really need to protect my whiteness. That's the only thing that's keeping me in this dope-ass suburb that I live in. But so the the parents... (laughs) Yeah. The parents are genuinely worried. They're like, what if my kid gets into college and then they get kicked out because they do some horrible thing? Because the stakes around affect and behavior and emotion are so high. And I also, I, uh, so I also, sorry to interject here. I also think the PMC um, really is the soup, the liberal superego. So the superego is filled with sadism and about controlling others and controlling your own impulses and controlling the id. I really feel like Trump was the id id bad baby of the PMC (laughs) superego. You don't have like bad id, bad id baby without like this punishing sadistic super ego. And so mm. um, all of these books are about um, reinforcing that, that super egoic, but kind of user friendly super ego, which is even more mm. frightening. And I feel like that is the next, what we all need to talk about next is PMC authoritarianism. Because what so much of this does is govern entry into the creative professions, into the Mm -hmm. humanities, into the media class. And if you don't obey, if you don't speak this language, you are excluded. You do not belong. And so that is part of the anxiety of the professional managerial class parent. Like the high liberal parent would have wanted you to read Shakespeare or would have wanted you to um, know a lot of languages or something like that. Like the high liberal, um, Mm -hmm. like poor parent. And now the PMC parent, this is how degenerate and decadent and awful we've become, just wants you to learn how to manage your affects. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like more enclosed, more monadic, less historical. A friend of mine said like around the nineties, this is like neither here nor there, but it's, she said, you know, the average, um, taxi cab driver in Moscow was better read than a PhD in the Western world. So I feel like we've managed to um, um, degrade um, that Moscow ta- taxi cab driver. So we're all just as poorly educated as um, an American PhD. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Okay. This is not going to win me friends in my profession. I, I was going to say, how, I don't like, care. <laughs> you know, don't you do care. mention this in your book um, about how your observations are based off of, you know, your profession. Living in this neighborhood <laughs> of all professors that I've lived in and raised my son in. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, can I give you guys another example of how I feel like rather than look, rather than even thinking or imagining um, structural changes that can take place um, to deal with the environmental crisis, the PMC is all about feeling good about itself. Um, I went to a solar panel like um, seminar about getting solar panels on our houses. And one of the women who had gotten solar for her house in my neighborhood, a professor, it's incredibly expensive. It's like fifteen to seventeen thousand dollars, but you get a seventy five hundred dollar tax break 
why my class needs tax breaks right now is completely ridiculous. Why solar energy should be incentivized by giving upper middle class people tax breaks is ridiculous. Why we're not building solar farms at scale in a massive scale. It's completely ridiculous. But this woman actually said, this is why I did not get solar panels, also because I didn't want to spend that much money and go into debt. She said literally, you know, after we installed our solar panels, I don't feel bad about turning on the AC anymore. <laughs> it's all about how you feel. Yeah. You're not, you, you don't have a big footprint anymore. And so we have to break that imagination about what progress is. Progress is not about you feeling good about turning on the AC. The environmental crisis is not going to be solved by upper middle-class Californians putting solar panels on their freaking roofs. Mm-hmm. It just is not. Mm-hmm. They can't imagine scale. We need yeah. large infrastructural projects. Like we need solar panels on in in fields, you know, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. over parking lots, whatever, like massive infrastructural investment. Mm-hmm. But the way that this um um the solar solar energy was incentivized in California is all about rewarding upper middle class people at, in their um alleged choices. Mm-hmm. So this is what I mean about I mean, maybe this is not being quite clear enough about why this class is in crisis because I'm aping them and saying like, they seem so smug, but I'm like, why are they, why do they have to um, display that so much all the time? Why is this ideology so deeply reinforcing all the time in almost every public sphere? I feel like it's because they're terrified of the void. Mm-hmm, <laughs> Sorry. Mm-hmm. That's, maybe, maybe that's too optimistic on my part. Well, so on on the subject of kind of like political goals and political coalition, something I wanted to ask you is, you know, you have a lot of progressives who argue that the PMC um, can be part of a left or progressive coalition. And I have a feeling that you are totally not on board with that. However, I do think that there's a sort of middle ground, which I'll call the Matt Carp position. I hope he doesn't mind, um, where, you know, he's he's um, very adamant that there's the Democrats are just going to lose if they continue sort of pursuing PMC suburban votes. Um, he's saying, of course, we need a working class movement, but the PMC, like, they're they're invited along for the ride if they want. And then I think that there's somebody like Michael Lind, who, you know, you mentioned him in your book. Um, He's a centrist. He's not a socialist, um, but he's sort of identified um, what I think he calls the managerial elite, which is the Mm -hmm. PMC, as like Mm -hmm. the number one enemy now. So Mm -hmm. in that kind of spectrum, where do you fall? (laughs) Um, Oh, I I do believe that they are the enemy (laughs) in some way, but I I don't think that there's a but I do think they are a following class. So Mm -hmm. I think if the left Mm -hmm. can win. They will follow, but um, they are not leaders. Although they, Sheryl Sandberg wants to pretend that she's a leader. Um, at this point, it's too um, programmatic for me to make those kinds of predictions. I mean, partially what I want to do is to give people the strength to negate its values because I think it is so powerful still. I do think, though, that I see within like nursing, within teachers unions and nurses unions, a real um, break with PMC values, a real resurgence of solidarity. But I feel like in many ways, it's like um, I can only negate and it's not my role to predict because Mm -hmm. my PMC values means I should shut up. But I do want to negate because that is part of my um, um, ideological mission in life. So I don't have 
Like the, I, but I do know that in 2022, if um, the Biden administration, on, you know, only listens to its PMC values, it will lose the great greater part of the American working class, working masses of all races, because people are really suffering right now. And if we can't speak to that, if um, government can't be retooled to make this, to make it work for ordinary people, um, I think that it will be a terrible repudiation of um, uh, of the Democrats in 2022. So that, so, so there is that. And, but I do feel like we need to fight um, we need to fight in ordinary ways and we need to join the fight for Medicare for all. Like those are very, very concrete actions within the ideological frame of the PMC. It is so dominant now within the media classes and within academia. But the very fact that you guys are able to talk about it in this way, the very fact that I'm able to talk about it in this way is so different from anything that I've ever seen before in my life. And I'm significantly older than you guys. I've seen so much more, um, genuflection before its values. And we were all sort of entranced by Obama, who I think is the apotheosis of the meritocracy. And I talk about this in the book too, and of the professional managerial classes. And our skepticism about his um, ethos is really, really great. It means that there is an ideological break. I also believe that we need to do popular education, speak in an accessible way. I this is my mission in life. I mean, I can talk about reification. I can talk about socialism, but I want to be able to speak to people who have not been to college, who, will, who want to follow arguments. I'm not going to be like busting out something like the Anthropocene or the rhizome or something like that and being like, hey, man, you don't understand what I'm talking about. This is so cool. I hate that. And I, and I really feel like that has been um, crippling, crippling for um, intellectuals. So um, in many ways, like I'm a classical um, Maoist in the sense where I feel like we need to learn from the people. And mm-hmm. it's ironic that I'm saying like we need to shut up. But in some ways in the political sphere, and Jen, I just heard your thing with Jan McLevy, we um, within union organizing and things like that, we need to put our you know shoulders to the wheel without without like producing vanguard theories like, oh, yeah, the riot quote unquote, and let's think of a new word for this. Like, fuck that. Just get get with get with the people, do the work that needs to be done. I have to say, like, this, this is anecdotal, right? But this is definitely like some a story that I think um needs to be told. Um and I will write about it someday. But when I was at the University of Minnesota, um Susan Kang was a, a student there at the time. The um Secretarial Union, the Administrative Assistance Union, um, asked me, went on strike. And I think I was one of the only uh, faculty who just participated in the sit-ins and the pickets. And I was really shocked and surprised that all of my like far-left colleagues who I was in a department of all lefties, they just didn't participate in the strike. And I think it was just like too banal for them. Because they were like Delusians and post-colonialists. And I feel like they would have said something like, you know, unions have to make demands. Like, that's just so banal. Or that's so, I, I don't even know what like technical term they would have come up with. I'm sure they would have come up with something like, the horizon of change is so limited. Or, you know, you can just make demands. That's all part of union self-interest. But every time I participated in, in a, um, a strike at a university like that, I mean, and Mac Levy talked about this. You just learn so much about solidarity 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was in the 90s, and people were really hostile to striking workers. So yeah. it was really important to have people participating, and not in like a heroic way, like, um, you know, Slavoj Zizek, I know you guys love him, um, go to, going to Occupy Wall Street and like with the, you know, making speeches, like just actually showing up as a body, doing stuff, mm-hmm. you know, um, that ordinary people would do, not crossing the picket line, whatever. Um, but there's like some you know, kind of obscurantism of, in the left in academia that I think really is a translation of this, what I call mm-hmm. in the book, these PMC Vanguard values where mm-hmm. um, my people, you know, my class always wants to do ordinary things in extraordinary ways. And that includes mm-hmm. being a leftist. And it's like, no, just be an ordinary leftist. Yeah. Right. I wanted to ask about that because it seems like the PMC, a a huge part of the political elite caters to their sensibilities, a huge part of the advertising um, class caters to their sensibilities. Um, Yeah, the PMC sensibilities. And they seem to have like a great deal of political influence for a set of people that seem to have no political demands, right? Other than to uphold the status quo and like balance out the empathy ledgers, I guess. Um, Give me an example of what you mean. I've been watching a lot of football and the advertising doesn't (laughs) doesn't cater to the BMC. Yeah, that's true. Not on football. Um, Yeah, you know, you'll see things, um, television or advertising that's like, for instance, okay, Marriott had a uh, ad campaign that I looked at. I didn't roll the clip, but while they were trying to crush the strike, they had this ad campaign that was like, "When can humans be humans again? When can we connect, regardless mm. of race?" Right? Um, forecasting that kind of um, oh, empathy center. Oh, I know what you're talking or, about. Or you, like, you'll see, you'll see like ads on the subway that are like for a, you know, um, clothing delivery service. And it's like, mm-hmm. you're a girl boss. You don't have time to worry about this, but we'll make yeah. it easy for you. We'll right. send you a snappy wardrobe, you know? Right. Right. And right. all of those things, you know, th- that's just, that's just the business of advertising, of right? Course. If they're going yeah. to find a way to, to reach that class and that class has a lot of money. Um, they have more disposable income, so they're going right. to market to them. But they do seem to have um, political influence as well. So you see Biden, he installed a race czar. Um, it's unclear to me how that position will take shape. But she does, to her credit, talk about, I think it's a former or Ambassador Susan Rice. She talks about economic redistribution. We'll see if that happens. She says it's central to racial justice. But the Democrats, um, the Biden administration is eagerly taken up um, reversing Trump's refusal to have critical race theory trainings right. for government employees. Um, you see people pushing policy at all manner of levels, state, city and federally around bias, bias training for police, bias training for particularly particular individuals. One answer to the um, maternal mortality crisis for black women has been bias training for doctors. Um, so, yeah, I guess my question is, like, this class seems to is it just that, like, it's a convenient um smokescreen to say there's a bunch of people that want this and we're delivering this to them or do they have some kind of like more salient political power or something in those political gears that can orient um certain demands that aren't even necessarily made explicit by the class to to be the for 
front or be foregrounded, particularly by the Democrats. Does that make sense? Um, it, it does and make and sense. I have I have a related question. Okay. Uh, is there class solidarity among the PMC? Yeah, that's a good, oh, really yeah. good question. Oh, yeah, there is. There is. There is. And this is one of its greatest powers is that, um, the, for instance, the credential fetish. Um, you know, everyone wants, everyone is very discreet about it, but everyone wants to know like what you've, where you've been to school, what you've done. The, the credential fetish creates a lot of, um, class solidarity. Um, that, and, and also their drive for distinction. So one of the things that we could say about this class is that it has to distinguish itself in it, um, against the masses that it's terrified of. And they could be like football fans or blue collar workers or people who just like McDonald's. So within its, um, taste cultures, the, it tries to, it builds like a kind of class unity through taste cultures. And we see that, you know, this doesn't translate necessarily into um, political power, but it definitely allows the class to remain within a, as a hegemonic force within certain industries. So what I was going to say, though, about, um, I think Ariella's question, which confused me a little bit, was that, but it's also a striving for distinction within very, very narrow um, managerial purview. So you can create this anti-bias training industry within this very narrow purview that and anti-bias never translates into structural change or social mm-hmm. change. And I think that the class is very, very cautious, very careful about always creating like and curating um, a spectacle of progressiveness that never moves into any kind of structural redistributive policies. So in that sense, I, I really despair about the, the class being able to transform itself um, into um, a progressive force again. Again, And that has to do with, you know, in many ways, like the Warren-Biden divide during the Democratic primaries. Uh, when I was knocking doors for Bernie, um, I knocked doors in my neighborhood and I cannot tell the majority of people were for Warren. Okay, whatever. But I cannot tell you how many people actually also said to me, I'm still studying the issues. So the class mm-hmm. really believes in studying it in this very ideologically constrained way. And so when Ariella, you're talking about the Marriott, you know, sort of being human again thing, it's still, it is about creating a very, um, a commodity out of a sensibility. And I think like that kind of studying and civil society thing that the liberals say they really want will, um, you know, translates into this very commodified view of self-care and dialogue and study and thoughtfulness. But within the massively unequal situation that we're in, especially with COVID and Jen's segment on COVID really talks about that the ability to even have the time for contemplation, the time for study, the time for the, the leisure to travel in married hotels, that, those are privileges and rights that the PMC wants to protect for mm-hmm. itself. It does not want to see um, masses of people enjoying leisure. It does not want to see ma- the masses like um, performing the kind of self-cultivation that Marx in his most humanist and sort of um, utopic moments um, wanted for all workers. It wants to keep all of that for itself. That's why it's a hoarder. Mm-hmm. That's why primitive accumulation of virtue is its ideological position right now. And it wants to, like, 
the billionaire class is so terrifying and so corrupt over the millionaire class, billionaire class is so, you know, um, rapacious, but you have the PMC in the middle saying, Oh, we're reasonable. We're studying. We're, we're, we're taking care of ourselves. We're being human. We're going on vacations, but you know, in a thoughtful manner, we're going on eco vacations. (laughs) And that is, um, what it that is at stake in maintaining its position of power and putting this um, enlightened face up, this pseudo enlightened packaging along on its um, on its privileges. And yeah, it is for the status quo. Let's just put it that way. Like in the old left terms, like it is about the status quo. And you know, Biden is actually. Let's put it this way: he's to the left of Obama. So I'm, you know. Not riding with him yet, like but you know, it's okay. But um the the it's a return to the status quo. It's like we got rid of the id monster mm-hmm. and we can be egoic and super egoic again. We can restore our ego through the reinstallation of our super ego because we got rid of that horrible id monster. Now, this is actually how the PMC views working class people and poor people. It's like they're just like monstrous id. It people who um, have no impulse control. And this is from the culture of poverty, Moynihan report, all of the ways in which you imagine like poor people are poor in the PMC's views because they can't manage their impulses. And they are objects of our pity and charity. In this way, they're very Victorian. Like all that discourse about empowerment and girl bosses, it's all about like disempowered people. We empowered them because mm-hmm. we act. It wants to see itself as the agent of history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's why I feel like, you know, whatever carried along or let's take the values of professionalization, socialize them, and mm-hmm. let's smash the managerial ethos. Mm-hmm. Maybe separate yeah. those parts out. So Can something we that goes- you talk oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> sorry. I was going to say, just speaking of, you know, broadening professionalization and, and democratizing it and making it for the people, you had given us some images of barefoot doctors. And I wanted to pivot to that. Sorry, Jen. No, no. Um, let's, let's see the barefoot doctors. <laughs> so um, this segment of Chinese history that begins in the Great Leap Forward that continues into um, the Cultural Revolution um, describes it is uh, this image describes a program that was put into place by the Communist Party called the Barefoot Doctors Program. There were so many poor Chinese peasants living in remote areas, not able to get proper health care or vaccinations. And from the 1950s on until um, the, the early 80s, when the program was ended, the Chinese government, the CCP, trained young, mostly women, to be barefoot doctors, giving them basic medical training. They were um, peasants, often from um, underprivileged community, poor communities themselves, and they were given training in Chinese traditional and Western medicine. This is like the dream of every like new agey upper middle class yoga girl. But um, and this actually was an incredibly successful public health program that delivered vaccines and um, basic maternal care to um, the poorest and most remote areas of China. So I was waiting, you know, a lot of people are like, so what's your solution to our problem, our present problems right now? And I'm like, what is my solution? I was like, what worked before, especially in a public health crisis, especially in a time when um, it was very hard to create 
um, public health infrastructure for people um, living in remote areas, people who are very impoverished, people who had maybe never even seen a doctor before in their lives. And one of the most successful public health programs in the 20th century was actually the Barefoot Doctor Program. Yeah. So you deprofessional, well, you you raise people into professional um, love, you give um, authority and knowledge and education to um, um, underprivileged people, working class people, peasant um, women, and then you make medical knowledge sort of democratized and available to huge numbers of people, millions of people, maybe hundreds of millions of people who had had no access to um, medical care before. And so like the Cuban, you know, medical system that doesn't get enough publicity in the United States, the Barefoot Doctor Program actually might be a good way for us to democratize um, medical care. A lot of physicians, assistants, and nurses um, are advocating for this, you know, have nurses be able to give basic medical care. Um, it's it shorten the time of medical training, make it more accessible to people, get incentivize people to go out into the hinterlands, enter impoverished communities, and um, administer vaccines in this way. Um, these young women were able to create um, relations of trust with um, these communities because many remote communities in China during the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s spoke dialect that, you know, stand, and they, many of these people were illiterate. They didn't even speak, you know, standard Mandarin, but the um, barefoot doctors were able to communicate with them, create trust, and there were hugely successful vaccination programs. So I'm saying, like, let's take the leaf from the Chinese Communist Party and deliver public health care in an affordable way through also a public education system. So you weren't just like giving people health care. You were actually educating an entire class of people, showing them that they had a stake in public and they could be doctors. I mean, they were called doctors, you know? And so I feel like, I feel like Barbara Ehrenreich would be 100% on board with this idea. Yeah. You know, her book, um, which is oh, midwives and nurses is about the kind of assault on women who had this organic knowledge and who right. developed it with each other and created their own networks of democratic professionalization of these, um, right kinds of jobs. And then they were attacked roundly when male physicians were like, no, you have to have a license to do this, etc. Right. I'm going to no, burn you alive. Right. No, unfortunately, in China, when the, the, they abolished the program, they were like, we have to modernize. Like, we have to be more like the West. We have to train, you know, credentialed um, medicine uh, doctors. But the thing is that Chinese medicine was a really important part of their training because, you know, a lot of the herbs and stuff that they could gather were in the area. And, you know, ordinary Chinese people were used to Chinese medicine. So if you were a doctor offering them care and you knew nothing about Chinese medicine, you'd be viewed with a lot of suspicion. So you you could know chi uh, about Chinese medicine, but also administer the smallpox vaccine. And that was really um, amazing. Yes, Barbara Ehrenreich is a national treasure. And when I was doing Great. research in my book, um, I found that a lot of the centrists who were otherwise like reasonable people like Michael Lind, you know, or even like the right wing people who are more were interested in class like Julius Klein, um, many of them decided that they didn't have to cite her. And mm. so part of this mm. um, part of my book, I hope, is like preserving like the importance of her work, keeping that work alive, because it's so important 
for scholars to have a sense of history. And I was like, why are all these like DC think tankers talking about (laughs) middle-class managerial elites, but just skipping over Ehrenreich. And I feel like that's what happens to socialist intellectuals in America. It's still Mm. this, like we're, we're the left is accused of canceling people, but McCarthyism has canceled so much socialist thought. And I think a lot of, you know, I, I don't dislike Lind, but I feel like even if, you know, in terms of like in t- scholarly integrity, why didn't he even mention them in his mm-hmm. book? You know, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I feel like we need to preserve her work. Amber says that once we have socialism, there's going to be a Barbara Ehrenreich Square in every city. <laughs> <laughs> so like the another, I wish there was like a Barbara Ehrenreich professorship in every mm-hmm. university. Mm-hmm. That would be that would be awesome. So uh, it looks like we have kept you on for about an hour. Um, So I think we should probably wrap up soon. But I do have one last question I want to ask you. And this is going to sound a little bit individualistic or dare I say PMC. um, But uh, part, you know, in in the conclusion of your book, um, you talk about kind of moving out of the PMC mindset. um, And you have mentioned that, um, you know, in this talk as well. So I guess my question is, like, for somebody who's in the PMC who wants to be a class trader, like, what what are the first couple of steps? (laughs) (laughs) Please write it. Do a children's book. No, I'm just kidding. You're asking me, like, how to... Um, and I don't know that I have any answer to that. So like when you meet the Buddha, kill the Buddha. I don't know. When you meet the PMC within, be sure to kill the PMC within. Um, I don't know. Take an objective but compassionate view of your own feelings and put them aside. <laughs> Get over your own feelings. Yeah. <laughs> Is yeah, well, it's good? funny because acknowledge um, your feeling, acknowledge them, put them in a little blue ball, <laughs> and let them float away. Would the children's book version of that be called "Get Over Yourself" and I PMC Baby? No, I don't know. I don't know. And just to be clear, like I don't think that the solution is the kind of self-flagellation that the you know liberal PMC is no. so fond of now. I mean, Catherine, you use the word self-criticism in your book, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I do not think that you mean a kind mm-hmm. of white fragility, uh, sort of uh, no, yeah. no, no. Um, me, I, I, I don't have. I, I'm not writing a how-to book, and so if I was, and I'm only going to sound facetious and stuff like that. But um, one of the things that you can do is to um, get a really nice body exfoliator and light some candles and like get a sea salt scrub and be like, this is my, these are my PNC values and I'm scrubbing them at me. No, I don't know. <laughs> Take a warm bath and be like, okay, I'm just going to be like scrubbing suddenly. Yeah. You know, know, the great thing is like, there's, so many working class people, so many working class campaigns that are right. already doing this, that are already yeah. fighting for these things, that are That's already right. refusing to be silenced by the like, all we have to do is look within and question our mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z. Um, and, you know, we've got, we we have people where we can lend our solidarity, our time, our skills, and yeah. break yeah, yeah. down. That's right. Yeah, because you know what? There are a lot more non-PMC people than there are PMC people. Mm-hmm. And, yes, and I mean everything that I say, Jen, would sound like self-help or something. Like, never <laughs> feel like you're better than other people and stuff like that. I don't have 
Um, I I don't have a formula, you know, but that's but actually, I think, I, I think you gave the best advice earlier, which was just get on the picket line. Yeah. 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 Just, just, yeah. you know, and sometimes SPF that you. <laughs> feels like, you know, these things aren't won by some fantastic flash in the pan moment where it's like, oh, everybody saw the light. They're won by drudgery. They're won yeah. by hard work. They're won by long, long hours. They're won by, you know, p- literally putting your body on the line. And, and I also think well, you guys are doing already what it, what um, is really critical here, which is standing up to liberal, true, liberal super egos, you know, and just like, giving people support, being brave. Like when, um, you know, the graduate student unions are always being divided. And I was, mm-hmm. I really take McAlevey's um, thing to heart, which is all about um, creating unity and a time when capital would like us to be disunified. Like mm-hmm. don't go for the splinter groups, like have the discipline to, you know, argue for solidarity. I, I think that's mm-hmm. actually really critical. And denounce obscurantism, mm-hmm. even if it comes at a cost to you, because people, you know, you know, the in the leftist circles we travel, like, you know, people have all these like weird fetishes and they're gonna denounce you and you have to be brave. Like I cannot tell you how many weird like anti-Jacobin things I see, you know, almost every day. And I'm just like, okay, then you do well, you do you. Like, what the heck are you doing? You know what the you're ba- you're brand building on being anti-Jacobin. Yeah, yeah. Just call that shit out. I comfort myself with the fact that the media is very, very unimportant for most people. <laughs> like, I do think that there is a value to doing this. Obviously, I wouldn't be doing it. Um, and obviously, you know, I support Jacobin. And I think that it's great because people are always wanting to engage with ideas and it helps them build networks and develop things. But I also think when you look on the ground, like you see a lot more of what's going on and Um, One of the things that was interesting to me in doing my PMC research was how much it was oriented towards almost like finding the right party line. Like if, if they can just, you know, get that one slogan, everyone's going to come on board. Everyone's going to have this eye opening moment. And I think that sometimes the left falls into that trap. I think the right does. I think everybody does, but that's not how the work is done. You know, it's done. It is done interpersonally. And in that way, like, of course, empathy is important. It's just that the left's empathy leads to solidarity. It leads to you standing out with someone and saying, like, they shouldn't be being paid starvation wages. And I'm going to sit here all night with them. You know, it's a very different thing than just being like, oh, I personally feel bad about this. And you can change that person feeling bad. If if PMC people or alt-right people or whoever it is want to get on board with a union and fight for real benefits that everybody gets, great. You're great. invited. You did your job. You yeah, organized. No, I, think that's, I think that's a very pragmatic view. And there's a beautiful American pragmatism and pragmatist who was one of the great PMC guys, John Dewey. And that's what he would say, too. You know, every situation provides new problems and gives us new insights. There isn't like some theory that's going to spark the change, but that does come from the 60s, like the age of Aquarius. Mm-hmm. People did think like there was going to be um, effortless change if you just yeah. got like the right mantra. Right. Nope, that doesn't happen. I mean, um, I know this sounds corny too, but someone asked me this the other day too. And I was like, you know what? Be an ordinary person. Do ordinary things in ordinary ways. Feel yeah. so, 
make solidarity with ordinary workers your number one priority. Not like some weird idea that someone had. No, I'm kidding. I'm going to stop <laughs> with my um, stop with my <laughs> You're in the thick of it. It's, it's, I am. You obviously you've got help, some things to help. help. <laughs> I'm like in the well. You guys are giving me a little light. Yeah, I'm in the belly of the beast. I really am. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, where so where you're at? Another time. Another time. Another day. I did take the um, anti-bias training, by the way, Jen. So I have a lot to say about that. I well, Tom, I noticed <laughs> how unbiased you were. You're right. Oh, tonight, and I really appreciate that. <laughs> Thank namaste. you so much. Namaste. Namaste. <laughs> um, no, get, me my, get me my pregnancy parking space. <laughs> <laughs> I have so much empathy for her. Like she was all, in, especially her outfit because she was wearing nude. Right. <laughs> you notice that about her outfit bearing it all bearing it all yeah, yeah exactly all right guys well on that note so- um i just want to remind everybody to check out katherine lou's book virtue hoarders um again we've linked it down below in the description box so please buy it it's wonderful and um hopefully we'll have katherine on again at some point yeah thank you so much great to meet you Ariella. great to see you again Jen. it was such a fun solidarity talk Solidarity. Good to see you, Catherine. Guys, have a good night. That was great. I don't think I have uh, anything further to add, uh, but I, you know, I do think the book is great. It's very short, and I think that the way that Catherine kind of adds on to, um, as she said, the work that the Aaron Regs have sort of already put out there is really, really useful and helpful. Um, Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. And I think it's great to just, you know, I think most people are well-meaning and they take this stuff up. It would be pretty terrible if you were like, oh, have more empathy in the workplace and, you know, all of these other things that we pointed out. And then someone was like, no. (laughs) Right. Have no empathy. (laughs) You know, some of that's good. But what she really does is she untangles that Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. she shows the ways that it stops short in, you know, its best intentions and it completely circumvents real change or distracts from it in its worst intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a great read. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So you know what? Let's call it a night. Uh, but thank you to everybody watching and we will be back next week. Yeah. Good night, everyone. Good night.